Welcome to Baltimore, Maryland, and the high-intensity action of glory days, in contrast to the serenity of the thoroughbred farms of Worthington Valley. Here in Baltimore, the Inner Harbor, one of the great reconstructions of a major city in the United States. Then it's to the action in the Baltimore Arena. Let's go there for World Championship Wrestling. Again and welcome to another episode of the Retro Wrestling Podcast. I'm intern Alex, joined as always by the one and only, the greatest referee in professional wrestling history, Patrick Young. And Patrick, here we are. It's a holiday week, the Fourth of July, it Independence is. Day, and we picked a review that goes right along with it. In fact, this was the one pay per view that the WWE kept going even after WCW went out of business because it's just so American. Well, yeah, the Great American Bash. There are no other bashes greater no. than America. And, I mean, I remember all those great covers they did with, like, Tori Wilson dressed up as Uncle Sam with the hot dogs. I mean, just nothing's more American than that, really. Yeah. So we picked one from 1989. But before we get into this week's review, there was a big happening in the world of pro wrestling last week. It's the top story. And, of course, it happened... The day I published last week's episode, on the Thursday, like mere minutes after I had hit publish on last week's podcast, that yeah. it came out that there's a big shakeup, not a superstar shakeup, this time in the WWE creative team, as we have new executive directors in the old uh, directors of pro wrestling companies. Eric Bischoff will head up SmackDown Live, and Paul Heyman will head up Monday night raw of course this is all the devil's in the details because they will still have to report to one vincent kennedy mcmahon that is the only person they have to report to well that's the way it's spelled out in the press release and in all the news coverage but we really don't know exactly how this table this this meeting because it's very famous the way they do meetings is they do it in basically three stages it's a it's a large group with all the riders and agents Then it's a a more narrow group, and then it's finally Kevin Dunn, Triple H, and Vince McMahon, basically, are at the head of the table. And they are the last line of defense for all these ideas and everything. What does this mean for those meetings? Because does it mean that Vince is not going to be there anymore? And that they just go, hey, Vince, this is what we're doing this week? Or does it mean they'll just be one of those, they'll be added to that group of the core that is always there i truly believe that they're going to be triple h is going to be in the side view with nxt and building the brand as a whole but they will only answer to vince mcmahon not stephanie not shane not anybody story writing you listen to them road agents you listen to them when it comes to live broadcasts they are the end-all be-all call the final shot no one except vince can say uh no we're not going to do it but because Vince is still there at the end, the the roadblock before you're able to actually get it on television, I just have a lot of concern for both of these guys 
And Haman has already experienced this before. And when the news came out, and it was Haman, and it was Bischoff, I was actually more surprised about Haman accepting this role yeah. than I was for Bischoff. Because he's had a lot of problems backstage with Vince, where Vince is like, no, we're not going that far. Right. And, the, and Heyman's like, yeah, I want to, you know. The infamous plane ride following December to Dismember, where that was the end of it. That yeah. was, and in the Paul Heyman documentary that they did and everything, that was the end of the road for him. And yeah. he just, he was broken down. He was a broken man because yeah. everything he was pitching was getting shot down. And he had started off in creative in a very good way with SmackDown around 2002. He was the SmackDown 6, like the greatest era of SmackDown is credited to Paul Heyman. And then when they said, hey, Paul, we're going to bring back ECW. Well, of course, that was his baby in the 90s. I mean, that's yeah. his brainchild. So, of course, yeah. he said, okay, I'll do it. Absolutely, yeah. And then everything that he pitched was swatted down, and ECW, WWE's version, became what it was. And I just thought that after that encounter, that he was done. Yeah. As far as ever being in that position. Now, he has been at Raw weekly. He's an on-screen performer, and he's been contributing to the creative team just here and there, but now this is an official title, this is an official role and responsibility, and I'm just afraid that it's going to end in the exact same way. Yeah. But when we go back and look at Paul Heyman's history, I mean, it's crazy to think about how young he was when he got his start in this business, because we reviewed a pay-per-view from 1989 this week, and he's on it. Yes. Not only on it, it's a part of a match. I know, against also Jim Cornette being in, in this pay-per-view. I didn't realize how young Jim Cornette was in 1989 either. Yeah. So we go back 30 years. Paul Heyman was 23 years old yep. in this paper. That is nuts to me. Yes. and Younger so, than both of us. Oh, definitely, yeah. And yeah. he had started even before that. I mean, well, his yeah, story's was, very famous. He yeah. was 16 and 17. Hustling. Yeah. The Heyman Hustle, where he was uh, photographing wrestlers and, and selling them to Vince Sr., yeah. And Madison Square Garden and just eventually worked his way into a role in the professional wrestling world. And a paycheck, basically. Vince Sr. started paying him, not necessarily uh, just buying pictures off of him, but put him on the payroll and said, hey, take our pictures. And then he was able to parlay that into a successful career in WCW and then into ECW. And it's crazy to think about, but it, we go back to 2001 when ECW folded. Uh, that was 18 years ago. Yeah. So Paul Heyman would have been 35 years old. 35 yes. years old and he's already seen his empire rise and fall. I yeah. mean, that is insane to me that he's still relatively young. The one thing I will say about Paul Heyman, though, I think he gets sort of a pass because we all appreciate his artistry and how good he is on screen and how how good he is at cultivating talent. But as far as actually running a business, and this goes for Bischoff, too, and this is what I've thought about pretty much since the news came out, both of these guys sank wrestling companies. I mean, there is different reasoning for both of them, but Paul Heyman... In particular, even more so than Bischoff, because Bischoff had a board, and Bischoff had powers beyond his control. Well, yeah. But Heyman was in control of his operation, and he let it fail. And I know the way they're thinking, which I'm 100% with them on this, is the creative side of Bischoff and the creative side of Paul Heyman. That's going to rise them up, because... They took nothing 
or something that pretty much was nothing uh, and brought it to a new level and brought it up to where it made people stop and look and be like, wow, you know, what is this? I got to pay attention to this. I need to watch this. And nobody in a million years knew what Eastern Championship Wrestling was. It was an old territory that was doing well to put on TV shows, let alone put on just a regular house show. Paul Heyman took that, bought it basically from Todd Gordon, and said, here, you know, I can do this. I can do this. And uh, and made it infamous. And that's the thing is Bischoff. You think about Bischoff is a commentator. He's third string commentator for WCW. Just throws his name in the hat. And by luck of the draw, winning the lottery per se, like, yeah, we'll let him run it. See what he can do. And he turns this company that is losing money tremendously into a... Yeah, he finally generated a profit a in the first time dollar, in this company's yeah. history. Yeah, and it just, it was an amazing feat. And so the downfall of them, I believe the downfall of Bischoff was not being able to accept change and Heyman not being able to control money. Those, Vince is going to control. So I think it is brilliant because they have, they're getting all the good qualities without the bad. Right, they don't have the responsibility of the balance sheet yeah. because that's already taken care of. Right. Now they can just focus on what they're known for, what their best qualities are, their contributions to wrestling, which were the creative side. Right. Because to me, just knowing, though, that they both failed, and Bischoff, we'll get to Bischoff in just a moment, but Bischoff failed with TNA also, so he had a second crack at it. Well, that was more Hogan than anything, but yeah. I think it was Bischoff had less excuse for that failure than he did for WCW because in TNA he didn't have this this corporation behind him really. He had a smaller operation and he was brought in to be a savior much like he is now, but uh, wasn't able to really turn if, things if around. If you're on SmackDown right now and I'm just going to say throw this out there. If you're on SmackDown right now and you're not getting work or you're not getting past 205 or whatever, you better start asking to leave. I don't care how excited you are, but the track record of Bischoff, it never fails. He takes big names and makes them bigger. He will not take nobody... And the one exception is Bill Goldberg. And that was not Bischoff. That was Kevin Sullivan saying, let me handle it. I got this. So technically it wasn't even Bischoff. He can't make nobody. So you bring somebody up from 205, you're not going to be on the main roster. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen on your behalf you're not going to make it. it well, that's very sad to to, well, I'm just to know that he's been put in charge of this show. That he's actually, I think, gotten the bigger role out of the two because going he's to going Fox. to Fox. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the thing is going to Fox. They got to hit hit the ground running per se. That just plays into having nobody but your bigger names because we gotta we gotta play ball, especially with John Cena this past week saying, "Listen, I'm done." My wrestling career is over. You might get one here and there, but to see him on a weekly basis, which it hadn't been that way in a while, but to officially, he, he's not doing it anymore. He is the rock. He comes in on rare occasions. That's it. So you're losing that side. 
I mean, I'm sorry, but you can only bring The Undertaker back so many times <laughs> before the man is just really crippled down to the point he can't do it anymore. That's nothing against The Undertaker. I'm just saying. It's not like you can have Hogan in his late 70s lace up and go back out there again. It's not like you can say, hey, Rick, we'd like for you to lace up and put on one more match. Rick Flair cheated death. So what are you going to have? You're going to have Charlotte. You're going to have Bailey. You're going to have on your big roster Seth Rollins, Roman Reigns, uh, Drew McIntyre. You're going to have... If you are not main event as we speak, you're not getting anywhere, especially for SmackDown. That's just SmackDown, though. However, for Raw, Paul Heyman's track record is, man, I can take you and make you this. Without Paul Heyman, Stevie Richards would have been nothing. The very first pay-per-view for the title, okay? And Stevie Richards? You know, who'd have thought? He took Stevie Richards and made something. He took Kid Cash and made something on their out, you know, their later days. He took people that you just would not have thought could be main event and made something. Mikey Whipwreck. Mikey Whipwreck. Taz. So if you're a younger star, I want to go to Raw. <laughs> so you're really setting the stage here. I mean, if you if I'm signed to SmackDown right now and I'm not I'm jumping the- ship or I'm getting the hell out. I mean, that's just it. Well, I mean, based on their track records, I think you have certainly have a point. Uh, getting to Eric Bischoff, focusing on him, he's 64 years old now. He's not that much younger than Vince, really. I mean, he's only about 10 years younger than Vince. So. Yeah, although Eric's in really good shape. Well, yeah, Eric was, of course, an athlete before breaking, and he was a model. I mean, he... I mean, <laughs> That's true, well, too. Vince, physically, is in great shape. This yeah. is Mr. Bodybuilder Man, yeah. so it's not... I'm sorry, though. You can be healthy as everything, but it's like being the president. The strain of running something and thinking of different concepts, that drains on you. That really drains on you. Well, yeah. And so, I'm sorry, but I believe age might actually play a role in this as well. Yeah, Bischoff... Bischoff doesn't get as much love as Heyman does from pro wrestling fans, and that's probably because he was part of WCW's downfall, basically, and because his one great idea, I think, is the NWO, and that was a plagiarized idea. I mean, that was something he took from Japan and then repurposed and made it his own, and it's the greatest angle ever. So, Yeah. yeah, he did... He did only have one really great idea, but it was the greatest ever, and he got a lot of mileage out of it. But as far as sustaining a company, he hasn't had a real track record of doing that. Unlike Paul Heyman, had an entire corporation behind him. The same thing that was his WCW's downfall, Eric Bischoff had at his disposal and wasn't able to successfully compete and and keep this thing afloat. And In so, his defense, though, it was basically took out of his hands, the downfall. But the the landslide heading that direction was, yes, on his behalf. Multiple, multiple mistakes with Bischoff and his, his roster. And he had, honestly, at certain points, you could make a case that he had the greatest roster of wrestling talent that's ever been assembled. Right. And he wasn't able to keep it 
afloat. And that's that's pretty embarrassing when you look back at it and you say, who's on your roster? Hogan, Flair, Bret Hart, Goldberg, Sting, and the list goes on and on. Booker T. St- DDP. Everybody's looking at DDP. Uh, the argument in the past has been Bischoff made DDP. No, he didn't. This is when Dusty was booking and Bischoff was running the show. Dusty Rhodes saw the potential and gave DDP and made him a household name where Eric Bischoff didn't see anything. Eric Bischoff did not see past legends and stars and riding that gravy train. Yeah, and when you go to the undercard, he had guys like Jericho, Mysterio, Benoit, Eddie. I mean, just... that's Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit should have been main eventing uh, I believe Chris Benoit should have had a match with Hogan. And to guys that he lost, he had Pillman. He had Austin. Oh, man. He had... He lost something with Pillman. Especially Austin, but he really lost something with Pillman. Because that was the breakout of the... The, the loose cannon. The loose well, cannon. he got worked by Pillman and got... He fired Pillman after Pillman said, Yeah, fire me. It's part of the story. Yeah. So he got worked into a, a shoot, so to speak, but... Just an amazing roster of talent that he had at his disposal. And I think wrestling-wise, not necessarily for the stories that were being told on Monday nights for a while, Nitro was far superior to Monday Night Raw as far as what to expect in the ring. Like, the caveat I have to hiring these guys to lead your program is that you're once again looking to the past. And that's something that we've criticized them about, like you just said earlier, with Undertaker or bringing back Goldberg or bringing back Shawn Michaels for the Saudi Arabia shows. It's something they've done with their wrestling Re- roster. Recently, yes, very yeah, much so. They're, they, they keep looking to the past. And I think that in these roles, it might have been better to look for people that haven't been given the opportunity that these two have had, because they've had their, their time as far as running an operation and you get to see what they did. Maybe move along to someone like Jeremy Borash, who has a great mind for the wrestling industry that's never been put in this position. Or or maybe instead of just hiring these two, you hire younger people to be with them, and you, then you have teams. You have yeah. someone handpicked by Heyman to be the natural successor, and that Heyman is more in an advisory role to this other person. And same thing with Bischoff, where it's not... I just feel like we're just reaching back. You can't always reach back to try to to move forward. Yeah. And a lot of ideas. I think the biggest fear with Bischoff is, I mean, he's been sitting on his farm in Cody, Wyoming the past several years, and who knows how up-to-date he is with the product to begin with. And so there's a lot of uncertainty as far as how he's going to operate this thing. So I think that maybe it would have been better, like I said, to give someone that you have so much talent in NXT and on in your backstage area where like you have Jeremy Borash and you have Steve Carino you have oh man um, Steve Carino would be great you have Jeff Jarrett who also ran a wrestling company not very well but he did it you have all these guys available and Steve Carino is a mind of his own and still at a very young age believe it or not I mean he's in his 40s right he would be a great role to step in Road Dog is Road Dog stepped away because of the battle with Creative. Because right, he was just, running SmackDown. I'm just saying he he sees a, he sees potential. It's like Russo. 
you got to have that person that you answer to to keep you on the straight and narrow like Vince was with Russo. Russo was great. He had brilliant ideas, but 70% of those ideas were terrible. So you have to have that guy. That's the thing is Road Dog is going to have terrible ideas, but if he has Heyman sitting there going, you know, let's stick with this or let's and just kind of teaching him and giving, you know, just sitting him with the straight Right, and would work with him better than Vince who would just say, that's garbage, rewrite it. Yeah. And just just totally dismiss them and instead be more proactive in helping yeah, them. Yeah, or like you said, Jeremy Borash with with Bischoff, I believe, would be brilliant. Well, I, I do think they worked together a very brief time in WCW, so they do, and in TNA. They obviously did in TNA because yeah. Borash was there for years. I'm not too sure about this whole thing. And also, this whole thing is negated by that very last line that Vince McMahon is still the decider. So... Even if these guys come out with earth-shattering ideas, things that are going to either turn around or sink the business, it's still Vince at the end of the day. If if his role isn't changing within the company, because he's got a lot on his plate, he's got the XFL, he's got the daily operations of the WWE that he does, and he's in his mid-70s. So, he's got a lot on his plate. Now, if he's actually not going to be right over them and saying still shitting on anything that he doesn't like then it then i see some hope for this arrangement but if, yeah. if if it's still like it was when Heyman last quit and it's everything i throw at you you just swat away well this is doomed to fail this is not nothing this is nothing more than a press release to get people who are laps fans or people that like us that love the product to, to get them talking and it ultimately won't lead to a lot of change because yeah you still have a team of riders. You still have all the other people in place. So it's not like when we turn... By the time you're hearing this, Raw and SmackDown will have probably already aired. You're probably not going to see an overnight change in no. the product. So It'll take a couple of weeks for them to get things rolling, I do believe. So don't don't go into this Monday being like, Oh man, they're in charge. This is going to be great. You got to stick with it for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, they're still... The whole team is still the same. They're just now a part of the team. Yeah. They're they're allegedly given these bigger roles, but they're still part of a massive team. Yeah. So, I am hopeful for it because the product's been so bad uh, lately that... It, there's only one way up. I mean, you can't go any worse, I don't believe. Yeah, you can't... These additions can't make it much worse than it already is. Well, so. that's the thing is, they brought this past Monday on Raw, they killed the lights up in the nosebleed sections and the higher up risers and brought everyone down ringside to make it... Across from the camera too. So the the part so, behind the camera was actually mostly empty. So, And this is coming off of their pay-per-view stomping grounds that had terrible attendance also. Yeah, to make, to make it look like it's full. And they, I mean, they didn't even shoot the nosebleeds. No, they didn't take those beautiful wide shots that we're used to in no. the WWE production. The close-up stuff. stuff, to me, it looked a lot like a Ring of Honor type show with just a bigger stage. Well, they also had a terrible turnout for their pay-per-view they this did. past Friday, so it's um, not just them. I mean, even Fighter Fest, even AEW, even though that show was done in a gaming convention, basically, and didn't have the strongest card and it was given away for free on bleacher report so like 
why would I fly to go see it if it's going to be for free? So um, even that had tarped off sections. So attendance, I think we've talked about live live gate attendance in general the past few years you have to be very stingy with your dollar as a consumer about what you go to right and what you spend your money on and so right. if there's a garth brooks concert he doesn't come around very much okay so i'm gonna go to that or whatever yeah but if raw is coming around and it's coming around twice a year I think i'll skip it this time yeah you know and so i think that's not just a WWE problem, that's an industry-wide problem. And also when you get into all the fees that go with tickets, you know, it's not, oh, the ticket says it's a $25 ticket, but after the fees that you pay... Shipping and handling or or a handling... Just imaginary fees, yeah. A handling fee when you go and buy it at the ticket window. I mean, there's an additional seven, eight bucks added on to it, plus you got to pay to park if right. you're going to go to the show. But just, a good product would definitely incentivize more people to go. So, well, I I saw a meme and it was great because it said uh, it it said Lion King. Oh yeah, yeah. It talked about Lion King, Toy Story, Godzilla are in theaters. Bruce Prichard, Eric Bischoff, Paul Heyman are back in pro wrestling, and there's wrestling on TNN. And then it was like, man... Wrestling I, on TNT. Or TNT. And then it was like, man, I love the 90s. And that's what it is. Like, we're seeing the rebirth of the 90s. And could it work? Or is it going to fail miserably? That's... that. It, you're hitting... There is no middle ground here. That's the problem. WWE has backed themselves in a corner to where there is no more middle ground. You either hit a home run... Or you're done, and I am shocked to say that, but that is how bad it's gotten for them. Well, and I, I love the uh, WWE defenders on Twitter, including Seth Rollins, who discovered Twitter last week and just went on uh, a rant, and then also did a podcast where he was basically just spewing the company line, really turning off a lot of fans. I thought to have your top babyface do what he did was stupid, but anyway, I saw a lot of the the fan base that are always defending WWE saying TV ratings, oh, they're not important. If you look at it, even with their low numbers, they're still number one or number two in cable every week. And I say, well, yeah, that might be true, but they just got massive contracts. I mean, per viewer, what Fox and Comcast is paying for Raw and SmackDown is ridiculous. And I saw one person in particular say, this is what whatever on Fox did on Tuesday, and it was like one and a half million, one point two million, and I wanted to respond to him. I didn't because I don't. I just I hate social media and as far as fighting and stuff. But what I wanted to say is, well, they probably paid very little for those shows, and what they're yeah. paying for the WWE, they expect big results. Yeah. And so yeah, the ratings do matter. I hate to say it, but clearly they do they wouldn't be making these moves if they didn't so yeah and i saw a lot of discussion about like oh well why isn't triple h in one of these roles well that's because vince can't fire triple h because what if things don't improve because that's the only way vince knows how to solve problems is you're not doing your job get the fuck out of here yeah he can't do that with triple h so he can't put triple h in in one in the position of power in one of these shows because if it doesn't improve he's just stuck because this is his son-in-law so nepotism running wild that's why triple h can't be in those roles and that's why he can focus on nxt and 
continue to be in the meetings, but he's not he's not going to be given one of these titles. We'll see how it goes. A few weeks from now, we might be saying, well, that was the, the greatest thing they ever did. Or we might just be saying nothing really changed, or we might be saying it was the worst thing they ever did. So, Yeah, I mean... Like we'll I all said. find out together. And also, there's a lot of things that they put into motion, like, will the wild card rule continue? Are we just going to continue? Because Bischoff, in a lot of clips that I saw, said talked about the product and said, well, I don't like that the rosters aren't. You have to have two separate rosters if you're going to do this brand split. Is that going to continue? It is on Monday because there's a match book between the Viking Raiders and New Day. So yeah. you got, it's already continuing. So we'll see what, where it goes from here. But what else happened in the world of pro wrestling this week? Well, uh, before we get going any further, uh, you got this lovely t-shirt. Um, please enlighten the fans of what this t-shirt is. Yeah, you delivered a Terry Bam Bam Gordy t-shirt, which features a a striking illustration of Terry Bam Bam Gordy looking absolutely terrifying uh, over his name. And you tell me that this is a shirt that he... This is a shirt he wore in New Japan, and when he was doing you know, his independent thing without without the Freebirds, that, that was his shirt. I got me one as well, and there was we got a couple, actually. The, uh, the Bad Street Beauty, Miranda Gordy, and the daughter of Terry Bam Bam Gordy. And you know already how much I love her father. I mean, him and beautiful Bobby Eaton are the end-all, be-all for me when it comes to true wrestling. And so I am honored to call her an acquaintance and a friend and uh, look forward to doing more business with her in the future wrestling-wise. And uh, she is, I'm telling you folks, she is going to be the next second-generation star that is a household name because she is that good. And so definitely keep your eyes peeled for... The Bad Street Beauty, Miranda Gordy. But she's selling these t-shirts, so that's how we came upon one. She's selling, yes. she. And if you want one, you are more than welcome to reach out to her on Facebook. Uh, she'll direct you in the proper way. Um, she has her own t-shirts that are really badass looking, that are awesome. And uh, definitely check those out as well. I mean, I'm telling you folks, really, she is the future of women's wrestling and I definitely see her taking off, and it's just, it's going to be awesome. And I love, I love to see the name Gordy back in wrestling. That's just me. It's like Flair. I love seeing Flair. That name is synonymous with wrestling. And so to see the name Gordy, whether it's uh, Terry or whether it is Miranda, uh, this to see that, that, Name and that legacy carry on is just tremendous. And um, like I said, Terry Gordy, you know, right here from Chattanooga. Miranda Gordy, right here from Chattanooga. Uh, it doesn't get better than that if you're a Chattanooga wrestling fan. And I'm proud. And of course, Ray Gordy, biscuits and gravy. That's true, Ray. I completely forgot Ray Gordy. <laughs> With the whole Festus gimmick and uh, with, you know, the whole biscuits and gravy thing. Yeah. Uh, Ray, another great wrestler. And uh, I think he would have been better had they not 
made him a joke. Well, I mean, that was during a time when the WWE was very big on cartoon characters again. They tried to flip the script and go back from the Attitude Era and go back to cartoon characters again. And we've seen the results, and they haven't really stuck with that. Yes. Your your next big-time name in women's wrestling is going to be Miranda Gordy. And so uh, definitely keep your eyes peeled and... I'm honored to, like I said, to have become an acquaintance and now uh, to consider her a friend and uh, look forward to doing, you know, wrestling shows with her in the future and things like that. But definitely reach out to her. Check out the shirts. They're awesome. If you don't want one of Terry, definitely get one of hers. Uh, Moving forward in the news, Charles Robinson. Yes, Charles Robinson. Who is Charles Robinson? If you don't know, he is Little Nate. He is a referee with WWE still to this day. If you don't know Charles Robinson, then you're not a true WCW wrestling fan. So, Charles Robinson had a storage unit of memorabilia. Legendary wrestling memorabilia. uh, Star Wars memorabilia. Just movie stuff in Yeah, a lot of movie stuff. I'm going through the the PDF of all the items that that were stolen. So he had a a storage unit in North Carolina and give us a rundown of just some of the big name stuff. What is the single most expensive item? It was a statue of Bruce from Jaws. It says Jaws Bruce statue, and it was worth two thousand three hundred seventy four dollars by itself. He had all this stuff inventoried, by the way. So. This was a guy that was... Uh, very proud of his stuff. Oh, very into record-keeping, yes. too, because a lot of times when people break into these storage units, you're just... You don't know what Shit out lost. of luck, yeah. yeah, because you don't know what's in there. And but he also had Evil Knievel miniatures, which were valued at $1,800. He had, like, every issue of Fangoria magazine, which is a horror movie fan magazine, and that's valued at $5,000, which it was a 40-year-old magazine subscription. So those are the big-ticket items. But then he does have other, like, wrestling memorabilia. Like, here's a uh, Nitro Street Rods Ric Flair die-cast car, $25. It's 28 years old. So he had a, a lot of random TV and horror film memorabilia and then a little bit of wrestling memorabilia, but... Uh, definitely a big, a big hit. I mean, based on his uh, record keeping here. I mean, he even knows where he bought it from to begin with. He lists whether it came from eBay, and he's got stuff from Japan and uh, different That's... stores, and he knows exactly how much it costs. So these are not estimates; these are what he paid for it. So uh, pretty crazy record keeping from Charles Robinson. I didn't know he was such a movie buff. I did not either. He's apparently done like WWE.com features about his movie fandom and how much he loves like Freddy Krueger and stuff like that. So yeah, I was not aware of this. But not only was he robbed of memorabilia, he was robbed of fifty-five thousand dollars worth of memorabilia. Yeah, it's uh, quite a hit. I mean, he's got a. NBA basketball signed by Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone that he valued at $500. So, well, yeah, I'm sure he got that back from uh, Hogwild. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, just some great stuff that any person would like to know. Uh, one of the things popped up on eBay 
and was very yeah, it quickly was, took back down. Yeah, it, it was the Jaws thing, I think, that popped up on eBay. Okay. So it was taken down, so I mean, eBay has a record of it, so they've got a lead at least on one of the items. So well, I'm pretty sure if they've got one, then they've got, you know, that's the person that took it. Still, though. Well, yeah, I mean, when you rob a storage unit full of this shit, if you're not in, I mean, what a strange thing to stumble into, you know? It's not like oh yeah, they antique kn- furniture. They knew what they were, yeah, they knew what was in there. Yeah. And it was not just a random, so, but that's crazy. At the same time, why is this stuff in a storage building? Have you not made enough money? You've only been a pro wrestling referee for 30 years. Have you not earned enough to build a garage in the back? Well, I mean, it's like we've seen, though, at, at when we've gone to house shows. Not only does he referee, man, he's changing he's clothes. He's still part of the ring crew. He's going down there and taking the ring apart. Well, it's just sad. So. He can't get his own place on his house, so he's got his storage building. So, Dude, Charles is great, and this is really bad. I feel horrible that this happened to him. Uh, I really hope they catch whoever took it and i hope that he gets his stuff back but i mean it's the same running theme think of kelly kelly last year that lost almost all of her wrestling stuff stolen out of a storage unit if you are a a celebrity don't put crap in a storage unit i think pretty much if you're anybody that has a storage unit even if you're not a celebrity don't put anything of value in it really just put your junk in there yeah don't put stuff you like. It's, it's horrible, man. I can't imagine. Moving forward, a show, a little independent show in Indiana, uh, has got some controversy because now the health department of that town is telling everyone who had attended the show to come and get checked for HIV and hepatitis C. Apparently, this was a hardcore venue promotion, whatever you want to call it. And they used everything from windows to glass to um, barbed wire, thumbtacks, you name it, they used it. And there was a lot of blood loss. Now, you said you found a video, a little clip of the event. Yeah, so this was Rec Room Pro Wrestling. Rec spelled like a car wreck, not like a recreation room. And this happened June 23rd. It was in New Albany, Indiana. And they had a big show, 18 and up only. So that gives you an indication of what it would be. I mean, the poster itself is Blood Splatter is its main um, oh, wow, it is. feature. And it was $10.00. And from what we read, there was an even bring your own, bring your own weapon to the show match. You can view the video that I found at PW Trainwreck is their Twitter handle, and you can see someone getting power bombed through a glass table and a light tube. It was a really bloody event, uh, but the organizer, the event organizer, just calls this scare tactics. That all of his wrestlers are tested prior to the event and that they were all clean so well here's my thing and it's like i said to you before we went on the air if the health department is saying something about it then it's not a scare tactic it's there's a 
literal worry there and they're wanting to make sure everyone knows what they may or may not have uh, caught or come in contact with and so maybe they're not wanting to say a name but somebody did have it or whatever and so who knows but it's uh I would not want the health department after a show I was at saying hey by the way um, you need to go and get checked out. If you are at a show where the performers are amongst you, or when you're close enough to the action to where you can pick up some of these bloodborne pathogens, it's that's not a, a good position to be in. Any organization that's putting on pro wrestling should take steps to ensure your safety as a fan, because you're not part of the action. I mean, you're yes. not supposed. You're not. There, you're not getting paid. You're not part of the show. So and if they can't keep you far enough away to, if they're gonna put on a bloodbath of a show, that's their their call. But it definitely, when you start affecting the health, the when you start affecting the health and the lives of those in attendance, then yeah, something should probably be done about that. Yes. This, I mean, the promoter might have a point that it it might be over precaution. It might be a case of the health department in the county being in cover-your-ass mode because they allowed something like this to continue probably without the proper permits or the athletic commission, if Indiana has one, or anybody sanctioning this thing. And then they see a video of it and they say, oh, shit, we let that happen. Well, we better send this disclaimer out that you need to come get checked because we didn't know anything about it. So it, it might be a case of that as well, but... If you're at a show where you're getting that close, I mean, there's also some parts of responsibility on your end as a as a viewer that, you know, when those guys come flying, I get well out of their way. Well, they? yeah, I mean, think of Abdullah the Butcher and Terry Funk and all those guys that do, you know, Bruiser Brody, that go, you know, they're bleeding and they head into the crowd. What does the crowd do? You split. You give them plenty of room. For some reason nowadays... Crowds have gotten stupid and want to get right in their face and get right in. Well, they got to get their phone right up there so they get a good angle of what's going on. And so, at that point in time, you're going, you're getting involved, and you're going to get hurt, uh, whether it be purposely or not. Because who's to say that you're in the wrong position? A guy comes back, tries to hit a clothesline or something. You're right there, and. So you need to stay out of the way. Enjoy the show as a show. Do not get right up there because that this right here is a perfect example. And I'm sure there wasn't anybody with uh, HIV or anything like that. But then again, they're saying something about it. So there could have been a wrestler that had it and was not aware of it until after the the, the event. Stranger things have happened. It's very, it's something that you want to be cautious about for sure, especially on a fan's perspective. Don't, don't get right in the middle. Now I can understand you get hit and blood splatters out there on the, you know, on the crowd or something. You have a legitimate excuse, but it looks to be like these fans are getting right in the midst of it. And at that point in time, then yeah, that that was stupid on their behalf as well. Um, moving forward, though, talking about. Uh, danger and health risks. Uh, Tommy Dreamer 
did a he has his own podcast that he does and uh, Tommy who is you know great friend of mine I had no idea that this was a real thing he battles depression and he right after ECW closed at Wrestlemania 17 Wrestlemania X7 uh, in Texas which is right when Paul Heyman took over for King as at the announce table with JR uh, he had every intention of jumping the guardrail and murdering Paul Heyman and then turning immediately and committing suicide live on the air and this would have been tragic beyond belief yeah he says I remember I did a show there I saw a sign in Houston that said guns welcome I did an indie show and I said what's this I'm from New York what do you mean guns welcome they said oh you're allowed to bring a firearm into the venue I was across the street from the Astrodome when it resonated in my head so so much I'll tell you what what I wanted to do it's sick and I think this at Wrestlemania I was gonna hop the rail and I was gonna whack Polly in the back of the head right at the announce table and I was going to whack myself, the ultimate martyr. I was going to hit my pose, <laughs> crack, then boom, pull the trigger, because I was insane. Don't know if it would have went through with it, but that's what I was thinking about. Every day I was like, I will go down in history. Pop, boom. First, I'd think it was an angle until I shot him. I was so severely depressed and so mental with rage, I needed help. So, that is Tommy Dreamer's story. I mean, and we discussed this before going on the air as well. Uh, he's a... You know, he was the guy that stuck it out. And so he was ECW through and through. And I'm sure closing just weeks before this, uh, literally two to three weeks before this, it just devastated him. Well, yeah. I mean, most of the ECW roster was under the impression that Paul was going to try and find a way to continue, and then Paul showed up on Raw as a, as a commentator, and that's when they pretty much knew it was over. But a lot of the roster was working... When they did work ECW shows, they weren't getting paid, Tommy Dreamer being amongst those guys. And I believe it was that last ECW panel they did on the network when they celebrated putting the whole library up there that Tommy Dreamer was a part of it, I think. And he even mentioned back then, like... You know, I hated Paul for... He he almost made amends with Paul on that round table where he said, I've really held something over you a long time and finally going to let it go or whatever. But this is definitely a guy that we, we discussed too, that ECW wrestlers... I mean, some of them are definitely prospects that WWE would have interest in, like a Rob Van Dam is somebody that could have gone to in, anywhere and been a worker and been able to make a living but when you get more in into the roster of ecw and to the heart of the roster and i think about three guys and i think sandman tommy dreamer and sabu and those are three guys that they all ultimately did get a wwe contract which in hindsight is kind of crazy because i don't see the three of them ever going to wwe and they weren't factored into the invasion at first and then they were brought back for the revival of ECW, but they, they're they just not... They're just so niche. When you're such a niche wrestler like those guys were, I can definitely see why you would be extremely, extremely depressed and uh, 
dismayed when you're when the only company you think you can work for is out of business. Yes. And the only thing you've done is work for this company. In Tommy Dreamer's case, I mean, even Sabu and Sandman at times had left the company to go try in WCW. Uh, but uh, Tommy Dreamer had stayed the whole time. So Sandman and Sabu had left, but Tommy Dreamer had been there since was, Eastern Championship Wrestling. He was so. tried and true ECW from the beginning to the very last day. And yeah. to the point that I love this... He went a couple of weeks ago. He posted it on his Twitter. He went a couple of weeks ago to a restaurant, and it was for his birthday dinner, whatever, with family. But the they bring out like a mini, a little mini cake. Well, once they realized who it was, they even took extra icing and wrote ECW on the cake before bringing it to the table for him. He is synonymous with that. Well, and I told you, too, he got his entire t-shirt collection from ECW. As That's true. This man has the biggest t-shirt collection of ECW shirts of anybody, uh, probably because he was involved in the actual shipping and handling of these t-shirts. So, uh, I mean, his wrestling gear is an ECW t-shirt and yeah. whatever. I mean, he's been rocking those Dusty Rhodes pants here the last few years, but... Uh, I mean, his wrestling attire is an ECW t-shirt, so uh, he really eats, sleeps, and breathes ECW, and in the memory of it, and in all of these ECW documentaries that they've done, he's always the one that's most nostalgic for it, so uh, I can definitely see why he would be so distraught. I'm glad he didn't go through with what he talked about, because... Yeah, he even mentions it in his podcast. Yeah, you would have ruined WrestleMania. I mean, he would have ruined pro wrestling, pretty much. That would have been it. I mean, right. how, how do you move on from that? I, I don't think you can. So, uh, yeah. Terrible story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just happy it didn't happen. But, yeah, like you said, it's just the thought of it is terrifying. We digress and move forward. ECW, as we were discussing... On the network, we have the ECW Award Banquet. The ECW Awards Banquet was added to the Hidden Gems collection on the network. It was one hour and 46 minutes. It was a video that they put out. It was released in 1997 and was held just prior to ECW's first pay-per-view, Barely Legal. So some of those shots from Beyond the Mat that were shot were probably shot uh, during the awards ceremony and... Uh, also on Barely Legal and Paul's Pep Talk and all that stuff. So several ECW stars stood at a podium and talked about Terry Funk, and the upload is rated TVMA, so I guess they used some dirty words to talk about him. It's not the full version, though. It's not. No, it says the banquet is also available on YouTube and ends up being nearly 40 minutes longer total, though. Content not included in the network version includes a video package... Uh, the cameraman walking around and a speech by New Jack, which is cut entirely. So there you go. <laughs> New Jack, that's why. Uh, that's I was not aware of this. I wasn't aware of this either, but it's uh, in the Hidden Gems collection. That's it for news. That's it for news, yes. Oh, well. We digress into my pick for this uh, this great, amazing, legendary, memorable... Great American Bash, 1989. Yeah, it's July 23rd, 1989. We're in Baltimore, Maryland. 
the home in 2019 of Ring of Honor Pro Wrestling. We're at the Baltimore Arena in front of 14,500 fans. That's a big crowd for the 80s, by the way. It's a big crowd, and they were pretty loud throughout the evening. For the late 80s, early 90s, that's a big crowd. Yeah, especially for a non-WWE show to be as far north as they were. For an NWA event, yes. And, of course, the big match heading into this one, this was the Terry Funk and Ric Flair match after Wrestle War 89 is when Terry Funk was a judge on the final Steamboat Flair match. And uh, after the match was over, which they didn't need judges for anyway, it turned out, because it just ended like a regular wrestling match, Terry Funk got in the ring, challenged Ric Flair. Ric Flair brushed him off. Terry Funk was not having any of that, and he pile-drove Ric Flair onto the timekeeper's table, which did not break. Which did not break. And it looked it looked extremely painful. And then they would have Flair work a, a broken neck gimmick which miraculously healed just in time for this show. Yes. It's amazing. So that was the big main event heading into this one. But the reason you picked it was for War Games because last week we covered a lethal lockdown event, which is very much just War Games slightly different yes uh tna's version of war games and uh so we just wanted to pick an old war games and and the other one was two men that i just think put on an excellent match in sting and muda so there's your three in my opinion your three it's a triple main event wow the pay-per-view starts Welcome to Baltimore. It's Great American Bash 1989. Some great generic guitar rock brings us into Great American Bash glory days. You see, the city of Baltimore was undergoing a renaissance, and that's why it's glory days. Glory days are here at last. That's right. JR and Bob Cottle have the call. JR, who was also featured last night on Fighter Fest, AEW's second show. This one for free on Bleacher Report, which, just very quickly, I'll say that I enjoyed it, except for that head chair shot, too. I did not get to see it. I forgot about it. Yeah, it was free on Bleacher Report in the United States, and also in two weeks, Fight for the Fallen from Jacksonville will be free uh, on Bleacher Report. And that's that's with Dustin? Yeah, that's the tag team match between Dustin, Cody, and then they're taking on the Bucks. Though I would imagine, based on what happened at Fighter Fest, where Sean Spears, your favorite, Ty Dillinger decked Cody Rhodes with a chair, I would imagine that he's going to have some sort of involvement in this tag team match. So <laughs> Cody Rhodes got 12 staples. He did. Uh, I just the, the part of the show, it wasn't so much the chair shot because I think you can dismiss those. Uh, a single chair shot to the head, you can say oh, I just didn't get my hands up in time or you could you can make an excuse about that. But the yeah. fact that they had JR say oh, CTE, we're very much aware of that. I mean, this is almost almost 12 years to the day that Chris Benoit killed his family. And, yeah. I mean, very much related to CTE, which is something they really only test for after you've died. So it's not like they just take you in the back and they say, you have CTE. No, it's something they don't know until afterwards. So yes. I just thought, and they had him work it in with that low, serious voice that he does and just not you said it felt a lot like the owen it was the owen, i call it the owen voice anytime that jr and i mean wwe has had jr and king and their current announcers they've had michael cole and stuff when they want to get something over in a serious manner they have them talk really low and they, that's where you know it's serious but 
I just thought it really missed the mark. It was a, a, the really the one bad blight of an otherwise good show because it was a free show. I mean, what can I complain? I didn't pay anything for it. Yeah. So, and I thought overall, like the main event, John Moxley and Joey Janela delivered. I mean, it was fine. It was Tony Khan was interviewed after and was asked about the chair shot, and he said that extreme violence to that level would not be taking place on live television. So I'm assuming TNT is not going to be too open to that. However, pay-per-views will probably be okay. Uh, Unless this was an angle to basically be the one head chair shot in the company. Basically, that this is why we don't do it. It's because we have to do one to get... I don't know what the the reasoning for it is. The also thing he mentioned was he was asked about intergender wrestling. And he said there's too much of a problem and yeah, they too said much that, of an awareness now of of women uh, ab- you know abuse domestic abuse domest- yes yeah domestic abuse and that, that is probably more of a direct response to what the WWE is currently doing we didn't talk about this news really but their current storyline is having Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch they've acknowledged their relationship and now they are in an, a mixed tag program with Baron Corbin and Lacey Evans, but you have Lacey Evans decking Seth Rollins, and he yeah. can't do anything about it. And, you know, whatever your thoughts on the subject are, I just think it sends the wrong message to have any kind of violence like that going on because they're saying it's okay for a girl to hit a guy, but it's never okay for a guy to hit a girl. And yeah. mo- and people can think like that, but I just think that's wrong. It's, it shouldn't be acceptable under any circumstances. No. And. Whether also, you're a guy or a girl, you should that, never hit the opposite. Right, and he... Well, you really shouldn't hit anybody. Well, I mean, yeah, the whole um, thing, uh, like... But the fact that Seth Rollins can't get his comeuppance against this... That this girl is just going to abuse him. And yeah. the same thing, if he, if he was attacking Lacey, I'd say the same thing. It's like... Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a pretty distasteful angle in WWE. So, but what I wanted to get to about JR, so this is... 30 years after this show, he's still a play-by-play commentator. It's pretty crazy to think about. But, I gotta say, I think he's just not doing the kind of research that he used to do in uh, 1989 because a lot of these pro wrestlers, Excalibur is also there in commentary, and he knows all of these young wrestlers and all the things that they do and their history and their bios. Yeah. And so JR just seems kind of unprepared and he makes some comparison like that's the that's the one thing he can do is compare you you can say oh this uh this guy he reminds me of this other guy so yeah. he'll do that a lot but it's it's kind of sad because i know that like jr is just an exceptional broadcaster but if he's are he's already getting outclassed on these shows for AEW by excalibur so i wish that they could find a different role or reduce his role to where he still shines but only He's, main event matches or something. Yeah, he doesn't have to try to research a whole card of yeah. wrestlers that he's never heard of. So, like, Darby Allen, like, this this guy Darby Allen, he was saying, yeah, this guy's really strange, and he had a glazed look in his eye earlier today. Well, Darby Allen's straight edge, so he was implying through his commentary that Darby Allen was, like, doing drugs, and he's like, oh, he's out of his mind. Like, yeah. It was just really weird to hear from JR. But in 1989, JR's doing just fine. <laughs> We have a rough start here. This, oh, we uh, do. Uh, I, I told you, I thought this whole match, 
I I wouldn't have been upset if they just went ahead and cut it completely because it's so I'm with you chopped to shreds and it's a fucking stupid match anyway. Yes. Um, we get the old WWE Network disclaimer that pops up at the bottom of the screen that says it's presented in the most complete form possible. And sometimes this is true because WCW notoriously did not take good care of their master tapes. So some of them are fucked up. And so when they get put into the machine and they were going to be digitized for the network, tape machine ate them. Or they just would skip in places. So sometimes that's true. Sometimes the WWE Network uses this disclaimer to actually cut stuff that happens in a match. Like Super Clash. They cut a lot of shit from Super Clash that we watched. And that was just editorial decisions. Like... Yeah. The guy running down the guy for being Japanese or whatever. Um, here, I think it was actually just technical difficulty, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. I don't think anything controversial really happened in this Triple Crown Battle Royal, which is the way we start. But So we go out to JR and Bob Cottle, and they start to run down the whole card. Well, that's the first cut. So they get interrupted, and then this Battle Royal is yeah. set to start. And we get Gary Michael Capetta explaining that this is a Vince Russo idea before <laughs> Vince Russo was in pro wrestling because it's a battle royal, Patrick. Everyone starts in one ring. Yeah, there's two rings for war games, so they have two rings already. If you're eliminated, the only way to get eliminated is to be thrown into the other ring. Right. Yeah, It's a two-part elimination. Once you're in the other ring... There is a chance that you can battle back through all the other eliminated people, at which point in time, then, those two who are in charge of each ring have their own elimination match. Or was it just a singles match? Gary Michael Capetta just said they go at it, so we don't know if it was going to be a singles match. So one guy clears out one ring. He throws everyone in the second ring, and then that guy's supposed to clear out that ring. And then the two guys come together in which ring? I don't know, because we never found out. But then you have the winner. And, of course, this is for money, which is something that is never really brought up in pro wrestling anymore. This is, unfortunately, a, a days-gone-by thing about money, but yeah, where money is important. Winner's purse. So the winner gets $50,000. And out comes the WCW undercard. And when I say undercard, I don't mean that generically. I mean, a lot of these people had other matches on the undercard in this show. Almost every person. Yeah. And Teddy Long, holla holla playa, he is watching this whole thing. I don't know why, but he is watching the whole thing. With a crown. Well, he's watching this because both of his men that he's managing tag team that he's managing... The Skyscrapers. They are in this match. Dan Spivey and Sid Udy Vicious Psycho Justice is in this, so... There you go. Very nice. All of them. Unfortunately, because this is 1989 and it's a battle royal, you get standard battle royal brawling. And no one does spots. No one does a finisher. No one does uh, Kofi Kingston balance on whatever to get back. No. This is just brawl, brawl, brawl. My time to go. Okay, it's your time to go. I'll throw you over. So that's what happens. Ranger Ross, I tried to keep up with the eliminations. Unfortunately, the WWE Network was not going to let me. Ranger Ross is the first eliminated. Then Ron Simmons is eliminated into the second ring. So those two start the second battle royal. Ranger Ross super kicks Simmons and pins him 
And, and unfortunately, that doesn't work because this is a battle royal. So uh, the camera cuts away when he pins him, and they just get back to fighting. Ranger Ross then dumps future heavyweight champion Ron Simmons for the first total elimination. <laughs> so Ranger Ross, who I had no recollection of, Me and dumps Ron Simmons. So this is the way Hall things Hall of Famer. That's right. Hall of Famer, first African-American world champion. Then, Scott Hall, a very young Scott Hall, fresh out of the AWA Scott Hall, and Terry Gordy get dumped into the second ring, along with Bill Irwin. So the mullets are in full display here. But then the show abruptly cuts. More difficulties on the network. So now, suddenly, the rings are about even, as far as the amount of competitors, so I have no idea what's going on. Nope. Dan Spivey's in the second ring. He powerbombs Ranger Ross, and then... Only two men are left in ring one after Sid clears him out, and it's Brian Pillman. Flying Brian is going to try to take down the giant Sid Vicious. Most of ring two gets dumped out while Vicious and Pillman brawl. Then Brian tries to dropkick Sid, but Sid just low bridges him when he tries a running crossbody, and Brian flings himself out of the ring into ring two. So Sid Vicious is the winner of ring one. Ring 2 gets down to Dan Spivey, Mike Rotunda, of all people, and Dr. Death Steve Williams. Williams fires up the crowd by running in place. He power slams Rotunda. Rotunda misses a clothesline and goes over the ropes, so IRS is done. It comes down to Dan Spivey and Dr. Death Steve Williams. And since Dan Spivey's partner is alone in Ring 1, he's going to lose, right? I mean, you can't have these partners go at it. It's going to be Dr. Death. We'll see. Williams can't get Spivey off his feet, and he can't clothesline him over the ropes. Then Rotunda trips Dr. Death, distracts him, and Spivey clotheslines him over while he's distracted. Now, the skyscrapers must explode, correct? Because that's the rules of the match. There can only be one, Patrick. Only be one. But Teddy Long shits on this as he comes down. He says, match ain't gonna happen, playa. We're going to split the winner's purse. Which is not his decision to make. (laughs) And WCW would have said no. Yeah. So this is WCW's first... This is what they actually did in their business life. They would just give you money without wrestling. So this is what what WCW would turn into for the next 11 years is, here's some money, you don't have to wrestle. Ask Hogan. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, I was re-looking at his 1998 contract. It's fucking insane what they gave this guy. Really? Yeah, it was a four-year contract, so it didn't. It lasted longer than the company did. But I mean, this guy—if he, this is why he didn't work Thunder or Nitro that much because he was entitled to part of the gross ticket sales from those shows. It's one of the. Where crazy- did you find this contract? I want to see this now. I'll post it to our Facebook page, but it's the guys from WrestleNomics dug it out years ago and I it's it's been floating around but I never took time to actually read it thoroughly I mean I knew it was outrageous but oh man some of the stuff it's like he will be the featured wrestler on X number of pay-per-views he got he got a percentage of the gross of pay-per-view sales Patrick then he got you know all first class airfare accommodations and then just tons of other benefits and it was just ridiculous like is there anybody else's contract out there is it just his i'm sure you could probably find some of the other ones but and in it you can see the creative control clause that he has final say on all the outcomes of his matches that's crazy that worked out well yeah 
Then, so Teddy Long is in the middle of this promo about how his guys are taking the money and splitting the scene, which is a good heel move, but just for an opening match on your card to not deliver is really shitty. Like I was telling you, this should have been a dark match at the end of the show or the beginning just to, if you want to get all these guys that didn't have a match a payday and you just want to do something for the fans, this would have been fine. But to put it on the pay-per-view, to take up time, you know, you're paying at home to see this. This isn't Clash of Champions. It's not for free. Right. This was just shit. We cut away more technical difficulties in the middle of his promo, and we go straight to Gordon Sully, who is with Teddy Long. Amazing how time travel works here. Holla, holla, holla. And Teddy Long has transported from the ring to backstage with Gordon Sully. Teddy says he proved the skyscrapers are the best, and they won the Triple Crown. He says, bring them all on, Ric Flair, Sting, whoever. Bring them all on. So then we get to our first real match of the pay-per-view. I hated that Battle Royal, by the way. Like I said. Oh, it was terrible. Terrible. A terrible dub here. The first of many on this show is they dub not only the theme song of Fly and Brian Pillman, but also they dub over Gary Michael Capetta. Yes. They have some random guy do the intro. Why not just cut the intro all together? Why was it that important? To get him running down the ring, if you got to make it sound like this, like, or why not just pay uh, Gary Michael Capetta to come in one day and cut all this shit? Like, this was terrible. And entering the ring area from Cincinnati, Ohio, 225 pounds, Brian Brian. The first of many, by the way. Yes. He's taking on Bill Irwin. Brian is able to use his speed to keep Irwin grounded. Tillman takes Irwin out of the ring with a head scissors. He hits a baseball slide and takes Irwin to the mats. Irwin gets in the ring and runs into some deep arm drags from Pillman. Irwin slows down the high flyer with a big vertical suplex. Then he works a chin lock. Brian escapes, gets clothesline onto his neck by Irwin. This only gets a two count. Then Irwin throws Brian out onto the timekeeper's table, which is ringside. Ouch, and it didn't seem like Brian knew that it was there, so he just splat into it. Pillman fires up with some drop kicks and hits a sling blade. In 1989, I swear, it was a clothesline that he kind of circled. He did a 360 with. It looked like a sling blade. It did. And then he hits a splash to a downed Irwin. It only gets a two count. He goes upstairs for a missile drop kick but misses. Pillman then chucks Irwin into ring one, dives in with the crossbody from ring two. One, two, three... Flying Brian defeats the much bigger, much older Bill Irwin and wins the match. But then Irwin gets all his heat back because he no-sells the finish, starts whipping the post after being defeated. So he got some of his heat back, but didn't really get it on Flying Brian, so it wasn't that bad. But a very good opening match. This would have been better had you not just seen Pillman get jobbed out by those guys in the Battle Royal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's true. But very good to have Pillman in the opening match, to have someone fast, exciting, unpredictable in the first match, because uh, Bill Irwin was none of those things, and would have just... I I imagine if they put another giant in there with him, they would have just bear-hugged this thing out for ten minutes. What did you think of the opening match? Oh, it's phenomenal. I loved uh, Jim Ross calling it a modified clothesline. I thought that was he. That's probably his first modified ever call ever brought out there. with the sling blade. Yes. Oh yeah, it was modified. All right. Yeah, he calls it a modified clothesline. I you never heard him in this early use the word modified. 
So I thought that was kind of cool as well. The showrunner of Monday Night Raw in 2019, the executive director or whatever they're calling them, Paul E. Dangerously with Gordon Sully. Gordon says, you know, you have to strip Jim Cornette to win the match. Oh, the humanity. He tells Gordon he's just going to beat Cornette. He doesn't care about winning. Okay. Well, def- why have the match then? See, that's what everybody's been telling me. To win the match this, to win the match that. I am not concerned with winning this match. That's the point I've been trying to tell everybody. I don't care if I win. I'm here for one reason. I'm going to take Jim Cornette out. O-U-T, out! Because you see, in 1986, I was a photographer and I saw Jimmy Cornette fall off a scaffold in Starcade and I saw his knee come completely out! Paid off his doctor, and I know one thing, Jimmy Cornette. Your knee is not recovered completely. Your knee is still in bad shape. As a matter of fact, I know for a fact that you're wearing a knee brace. You are not ready for this match. I'm gonna take you out, my man. I'm obsessed with your demise. I've done everything I possibly can to prepare for this. I've been living dangerously all my life. I stand on a beach when a hurricane comes in. I've leaned over the top of the Empire State Building. Hey, I've even hired Rob Lowe as a babysitter. I'm ready for you, my man. I'm ready for this match. Win, lose, or draw. They're going to have to call me the greatest manager in wrestling. Because after tonight, my man, you'll never be able to walk again. You're going to be hobbling around like a Vietnam veteran. More fake WWE Network dubs as the dynamic dudes are introduced. Johnny Ace, stepfather to the Bella Twins, and Shane Douglas of ECW and New Blood WCW fame. Here, uh, running out in their Bart Simpson impersonator gear here. The blonde was strong in this match. Oh, it was. And the mullet, too. The mullet was very popular. I love the kid that they pick out of the fans to throw a frisbee to, and he just didn't care. Another bad dub is the skyscrapers come out, so more blonde mulleted men. The crowd makes fun of Teddy's bald head to start the match. A bald head that would only get balder. Yes. Dan Spivey no-sells a dropkick from Shane Douglas. Sid tags in, takes over a Johnny Ace. He gets a huge pop. I still cannot, for the life of me, understand how Sid was so over. Dude, they loved him. These guys are working heel, and they loved Sid I know, so much, but we see man. this all the time when we bring up Sid matches on this show for whatever reason. And in the Northeast, it's something. And he's not from the Northeast. No, he's from Memphis, Memphis, Arkansas. Yeah, West but, Memphis, Tennessee. But he gets Arkansas. So he gets, <laughs> but he gets huge reactions in the Northeast. Yes, no matter what he does. And yeah, here he is, the bad guy against the Bart Simpson good guys, the surfer dudes. No, they just love Sid. He did nothing in this match either. No. I don't even think he bumped. The only thing he did was go down to one knee, and even then, it was... He was right back up. So he gets a huge pop just for tagging in, then he tags Spivey right back in. Shane Douglas comes in, gets side-slammed by Spivey. A huge, we want Sid chance. Yes, this really happened. And it happened... For the next decade of just random shows where Sid is just God to these people. <laughs> it's just weird. Uh, Spivey works over Shane, power bombs him. Spivey boots Shane out of the ring, and Teddy gets some boots in on the face. Then Sid finally gets the tag. The crowd goes crazy again. The skyscrapers try to double-team Johnny Ace, but they end up clotheslining each other. Then the dudes with attitudes, or what are they called here? 
The dynamic dudes. The dynamic dudes drop kick Sid. The dynamic dudes hip toss Dan Spivey, but then Sid wakes up. Spivey does a terrible one shoulder power bomb to Johnny Ace and gets the win. Yeah. Well, you can't argue with how over Sid was. So. Jeez, man. And you talk about buffed, dude. Sid was chiseled. Well, he was trying to get that WWF run. Get that big contract. He yeah. had that eight pack going and everything. He was jacked. And then he got- did. I mean, he did look different than anybody else. I mean, he looked almost like a Bill Goldberg like body type he as did. far as so different from everybody else that's yeah. standing next to him. And I guess that's what got him over because it wasn't his promos, it wasn't his wrestling. It was just look at him. Damn sure one dance, Bobby. <laughs> no, Dan Spivey not doing much for anybody. Jim Cornette is backstage with Gordon. Jim Cornette says that Paul Heyman won't cripple him, and he's going to win. Well, let me tell you, so you know, Paulie Dangerously, he's done his homework. He was exactly right on all his facts. At Starcade 86, I did get knocked off that scaffold, and I did blow my knee completely out. I suffered a torn anterior cruciate ligament. I underwent surgery. I was in a hospital for a while, and I still have to wear a brace because orthoscopic surgery couldn't repair it sufficiently. So you've done your homework right, Paulie. But I'll tell you this. This is a chance for me to prove myself. This is a chance for me to get some satisfaction, not only for myself, but for all those people across the country who would like to take one of these and put it upside your head. And that's why I don't care. If you break one of my legs, I'll come hopping to you. If you break both of my legs, I'll crawl like a belly, like a reptile on my belly to get to you, Polly. Because I want some satisfaction. You've tried everything that you could think of to take my place in the NWA. You've copied my men. You've copied their moves. You've copied my dirty tricks and my cheap tactics. You have tried to take my place. But the only way you'll ever take my place, Polly, is when I'm six feet under. And if you want me there, you're going to have to put me there yourself. You ain't man enough to do it. And I'm going to prove something right here. Because if there's one time in his life that Jim Cornette needed to get physical and needed to win a fight, then, brother, it's right now. And I'm going to get at everything I got. And part of it's going to be for me. But part of it's going to be for all those people who have supported me and after all the things that I've done in the past has said, Jim Cornette, we're on your side. I'm getting out of here. The manager's tuxedo match is next. Paul E. Dangerously is out first, followed by Jim Cornette. Cornette immediately rips Heyman's coat off. Heyman throws freedom powder in Cornette's face. Heyman then beats Cornette's knee with his big cell phone, which is actually just a cordless phone. <laughs> and then Paul E. takes Cornette's coat off. Then Heyman takes his cummerbund off, so he's stripping himself here, not good strategy in a tuxedo match, and chokes Jim Cornette with it. Cornette returns the favor with Heyman's cummerbund, then Heyman takes Cornette to the outside, continues the beating. Cornette takes Heyman down with strikes, and takes Paul E's shirt. Then Heyman goes to the Freedom Powder again, but Cornette kicks it in his face and steals Paul Heyman's pants, and Paul E dangerously runs to the back as he loses this tuxedo match the precursor to bra and panties match was yes. uh, laid in place by Tuxedo. paul Heyman and jim Cornette, yeah. two of the greatest managers of all time here reduced to comedy but they were good at it uh, you can't every not- article of clothing that was pulled off got thrown into the fans oh and wouldn't that be just a delight to have jim sweaty Cornette. man's yeah. pants yeah. jim Cornette's jacket a fine comedy goofball yeah, need good. to fill a few minutes whatever it worked for what it was still amazing to me though that those guys were so young the wwe doesn't even really do managers anymore like doesn't hire managers yeah. and especially managers that are in your 20s you're not going to be younger than the talent that you're managing yeah so 
just kind of a, an interesting footnote that here in 2019, Jim Cornette and Paul Heyman are thought of as two of the greatest minds in pro wrestling. And here they are in 89. Like, they just, they've transcended multiple companies and, like, multiple generations of pro wrestling to still be thought of as such in high regard. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Gary Hart is with Gordon Sully. Gary tells Sting that Great Muda will take that TV title from him. We cut to the next match. It's Varsity Club's Kevin Sullivan and Mike Rotunda. They're taking on the Steiner brothers, who have Missy Hyatt as the manager. How, was, how in the hell did that come about? I, it makes zero sense here. And she does nothing for them. She is nothing. not in this match at all. The two teams... Fuck tag team rules. Fuck all that. This that takes up tornado. too much time. This was a tornado tag, basically. They just brawl. Yes. The Dogface Gremlin and Kevin Sullivan brawl on the outside, of course. Dogface Gremlin being a former part of the Varsity Club. So this is really personal for him. Rick gets crotched on the guardrail. Rick gets thrown into the timekeeper's table and returns the favor to Sullivan. Scott and Mike Rotunda just brawl in the ring. Scott misses a clothesline to Rotunda and falls to the outside. This allows the Varsity Club to take control briefly. Scott puts Mike in the Tree of Woe. Rick power slams Kevin Sullivan. Then Sullivan takes Rick out of the ring. And the Varsity Club take down Scott. Sullivan throws a stretcher in Rick's face. Then Scott flies off the top rope, crossbodies Rick and Sullivan, so the Steiners pin Sullivan out of nowhere and win the match from this very quick top rope move from Scott. And that's it, because we smash cut to Gordon with Sting and Eddie Gilbert, so no time to even digest what happened here, but this was intense. It felt personal. The Varsity Club angle, I guess, with Rick had played out over uh, many months, so I guess I would have been more invested in this at the time, but... Uh, I was three, so I wasn't watching much um, WCW in 1989. So, a very good match. I I like it when they ignore traditional tag team rules because you see the traditional tag team match all the time of dude gets beaten down, gets a hot tag, guy cleans house, end of match. I mean, you can only do that same formula a million times. Yeah before it's like why don't we see anything different why doesn't wwe do that every once in a while just says why do we have to tag why not just go but i think wcw was on to something so you were three here right yes okay what 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 month was this oh this was july so i was i was eight months old yeah i think i was actually only two right i was eight months old for this pay-per-view two days shy of being eight three days shy of being eight months old that's right i mean and what have we accomplished not, not much. Uh, well, a world-renowned radio show, and I am the greatest referee of all time. So we smash cut to Gordon Sully with Sting and Eddie Gilbert, and Sting, of course, he's fired up. He's got baby face fire. He doesn't know why he's so excited, but he is. He's going to defend his TV title and bring justice to America. I don't know exactly what he said, but that's what he said. And here's, here's what he said. Just listen to this. That's why I'm keeping it toned down a little bit right now. Normally, I like to go nuts even when I talk to you. First time for me and you, Gordon Soley. Eddie and the camera, everybody here, I just can't stand still. It's hard for me to stand still, but I know that i got to keep everything inside of me because I do have a lot of respect for Muda. He's got a great style, similar to mine, and I have a lot of respect. And I'm just going to keep it together and stay serious and head to the ring right now because it's coming up. Eddie, I got to go. I'm serious. I got to get this thing going. We're done over. 
I, I kind of know what he's feeling right now. I've been with him for three hours now. We've been sitting and talking about this. This is just not a last-minute thing. Sting is up for probably the most biggest match of his career, the most important. I've seen him since the beginning. The only thing I've asked of him is tonight, let's see the best Sting has because I, like him, have a lot of respect for the great Muda. But the guy I don't have respect for is Gary Hart, and I'm going to keep him out of the picture. Let's see who the better man is. I want to know why he has hot stuff Eddie Gilbert with him. It's bizarre that he has a manager at all. Well, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert's a heel. Why does he have Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert with him? Well, I don't know. And Eddie Gilbert doesn't do anything to help him, really. No, Eddie's working... Or, I mean, uh, Sting's working baby. Eddie's a heel. And uh, I, I have no idea. Because Muda's heel here with Gary Hart... Definitely. So, I don't know. I, I thought it was very strange. But, I mean, very, by the end of the night, he has moved on to a new relationship. One that wouldn't end well for Sting. Yes. A gong is hit for Great Muda. Big entrance here as Gary Hart and Muda walk down to the ring. Then Sting gets Pyro as he comes out with Eddie Gilbert. He's the TV champion. Muda goes to ring two. Sting goes to ring one. Sting decides to dive from ring one to ring two to get the jump on Muda like a good baby face would, of course. (laughs) Then they go back to ring one. Muda judo chops Sting off the top turnbuckle. Muda hits the back handspring elbow and a backbreaker to Sting. Misses a moonsault. Kicks Sting out of the ring. Muda hits a pescado to Sting before Sting clotheslines Muda off the top turnbuckle. Sting knocks Muda out of the ring and dives to the outside to just deliver a punch to Muda. This was a very funny... It looked like he was going to do a suicide dive, but he just jumps over, stands on the ground, and then punches Great Muda. So, not exactly... A high flyer, Steve Borden. They get back into the ring. Muda locks Sting in a sleeper, which Muda just gives up on eventually. Sting then press slams Muda and misses a leaping elbow. Muda works over Sting with a chin lock and an abdominal stretch. But Sting fires up, hits a clothesline and a bulldog. Muda accidentally misses. Nick Patrick, the referee, takes the mist in his face. Stinger splash misses Muda, but then Muda hits a moonsault and the new ref can only get a two count. So... Muda inadvertently cost himself the match. Belly-to-back suplex and Sting gets the win out of nowhere. As there was controversy here at this finish, as it looked actually like Sting's shoulders were down at first. They weren't, but Muda definitely popped one shoulder up before the three, so... Yeah, uh, it's weird. Controversy here. It's almost like they're setting up some sort of match down the road. A fine match between these two. Sting was really fired up. A lot of babyface fire. Not very good wrestler, Steve Borden in 1989. And uh, Great Muda doing stuff like moonsaults and he was way ahead of his time and uh, looked great against Sting. But Sting, hate to say it, he was dragging the match down. But he, he was energetic in his lack of offense. Like he would... Like I said, he dove to the outside just to punch Muda. He would run around. He was he was fired up. He had no he had nowhere for all this fire to go because he didn't know what to do. But it was exciting. Gordon is in with Lex Luger, the United States champion. Luger says the NWA may be able to dictate who's number one, but he's the total package. Lex Luger, U.S. Heavyweight Champion, is with me. His match is upcoming next, and it's one fall, no disqualification. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are this, Gordon. We go walk a long ways. You know that I say what I mean. I've had a team of attorneys here all day long. And I got a big surprise for all you out there. 
everybody the audience in Baltimore, but most of all, Ricky Steamboat. The NWA may be able to dictate, Gordon, who ranks number one, who ranks number two, but I am the total package. I am the greatest U.S. heavyweight champion of all time and the man to beat in this sport today. And nobody, and I mean nobody, dictates to me how to defend my U.S. heavyweight title. If there's going to be a match here tonight, it's going to be without any no disqualification stipulation, a straight U.S. title match. Well, in other words, he's saying that if they don't waive that disqualification, there won't be a match. Interesting observation from the U.S. heavyweight champion Lex Luger. Are we talking about arrogance? Or prudence. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. How far things have fallen for him because he wasn't a programmer with Ric Flair. Now he's in a program with Lex Luger. So things not looking good for the steamer. He's carried out by, I called them druids because it just reminded me of an Undertaker entrance here. So baby-faced Ricky Steamboat always incorporating his wife and his kids. So they, they walk out first. But then it's Ricky Steamboat being carried by druids on a board while holding an actual dragon a kimono yes, dragon it was he was he wasn't dressed up like a dragon like in wwf but had he been this would have been a little too on the nose for me really <laughs> it was a it was a not a full-grown komodo dragon but it was a nonetheless a good what three four feet long it's com- very strange too for the baby face to come out with the reptile and yes. and also not use it because i mean jake the snake when he brought out the snake, it was getting used in the match. Oh, yeah. But here this kimono dragon was just a prop for the intro. Luger gets big pyro for his entrance, and he does some poses. He just wants to show off his wonder pod. Luger grabs the mic. Uh-oh. Big problems here. He says he wants the no-DQ match thrown out, or he's walking. Again, WCW just allowing their talent. Did to... you catch the glitch there with uh, his entrance, by the way? What was it? With Luger. So he's on one of those rotating things. <laughs> so he's on a turntable. Yeah, and it stops. And he's like trying to get it to keep going, and it stops. That's hilarious. So he has to step off backwards and like turn around and pose and all this. A perfect metaphor for his wrestling career. It was great. But Luger wants the no DQ match thrown out, which is weird because he's the heel. He would want the no DQ match, wouldn't you think? No. Why would Steamboat cheat? Because I want that that uh, champion's advantage. If there's a DQ, I keep my title. Ah, oh, that's a that's a fair point. I think you actually make a good case here. Steamboat okay's it after minutes of deliberation here. No one knew what the fuck was going on. Gary Michael Capetta announces it to the crowd that it's just going to be a regular match. Card subject to change. Fuck all you guys for buying a ticket to see this no DQ match. Steamboat tries some quick pins on Luger, then hits him with some drop kicks and a back body drop. Luger gets Steamboat out of the ring. They brawl around the ring for a while. Steamboat mostly nails Luger with chops while they're on the outside. When they get back in the ring... Luger takes over with strikes, a press slam, some big clotheslines. Steamboat is out on his feet, literally swinging for the fences, but he's so out of it, he doesn't hit anything. Luger power slams Steamboat, gets a two count. Steamboat hits a swinging neckbreaker on Luger that finally slows him down. Steamboat slams Luger off the top turnbuckle, then climbs the buckle for the judo chop, but Luger kicks out at two and a half from the judo chop. Steamboat gets back body dropped into ring one. Luger grabs a chair... But it backfires, and he gets catapulted into the corner with it. 
So, ouch. Steamboat yeah. then shoves down the ref. Babyface Ricky Steamboat. Career-long babyface. Ricky up. Steamboat shoves down the ref. Grabs the chair. Then picks up the chair. And he's going to hit him. He is. He's going to hit him. And then he, bam, right in across the back. Oh, bam, right across the chest. He collapsed. Our hero. And the the bell goes off. DQ. Ricky Steamboat broke bad. He got DQ. He did it right in front of the ref, even right though he shoved him. him. This makes no sense, because Ricky Steamboat would not be turning into a heel. No, he was mad, though, But he got because he got beat up with a chair by Luger. Had Luger hit him, though? Because Luger had only gone into the chair himself. So Steamboat had no reason to just... Well, the build for this match, though. Oh, I Luger see. Luger attacked him with a chair and messed him up pretty bad. Oh, I see. So the all... chair, yeah. So Steamboat did need this no-DQ clause, so Lex Luger was smart. Yes. He... he thought about this that he wanted that chair to use so he knew he could anger ricky steamboat yeah get him to turn to the dark side i still think it's a wrong move to make for ricky steamboat because if you don't have plans to turn him into a bad that's guy, true because he is you can't make ricky steamboat bad he has he is the ultimate baby face Along the lines of, like, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. You can't... Even though if they had capitalized on his real name, Richard Blood, and turned him into Dick Blood, he could have been a great heel. That's true. They missed out. Steamboat, not satisfied with this outcome, chases Luger up the ramp with the chair. Luger falls right there on the ramp. he does. And Steamboat stops. Doesn't hit him. Doesn't attack him more. Let's him run away. Let's him get back to his feet and then keep running away. And then Steamboat, the loser, then poses on the stage with the chair like a dork. Yes. So, uh, booked really weird. Uh, booked really oddly. Like I said, yeah. it was just totally backwards. Very different. And I guess it was just a way so that Steamboat didn't have to get beat. I guess. Steamo didn't get beat, but he also Luger didn't, didn't get, get beat. So. Well, yeah, he he didn't he didn't get the U.S. title. I wish that they had just done a time limit draw. Then it's Luger, man. He can't. <laughs> I'm asking too much. Yeah, think about what you're saying. It's like asking Goldberg to go 30 minutes. Come on. We go backstage to the Freebirds with the Samoan SWAT team. Jimmy Garvin says, "Freebirds don't care." Michael Hayes says, we don't have to care, and he puts over the Samoans. Then Terry Gordy says, they've got the bombs, and we're going to drop the bomb. <laughs> I've heard some silly talk going around here. Silly talk. I've heard some real silly talk. They're saying that we should be worried in the war games, and I think yeah. that's pretty silly. Anybody with a half a brain, Michael, can take a look at their television set right now, and you tell me, baby, look into that tube, and if you look like us, would you be worried? No, 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 no. We don't care, do we? No, 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 no. Michael, tell them how we feel, will you, First please? of all, we yeah. don't have to care. The reason we don't have to care is we got what you want. And you know what you can do? You can want in one hand, do what you know else in the other, and see which one fills up first, boys. <laughs> because sitting right beneath us is the savage beast yes. that came across our yes. boat 
No, they didn't let him on no jet airliner. No, they didn't let him on no Silver Eagle. They paddled across on a boat. And they've been going in your face, road warriors. And they've gone down and ripped your heart right out. And then the Midnight Express, the most technical team in professional wrestling, has had technical breakdowns. And then, who could forget Dr. Death, the meanest, awesome man in professional wrestling until the sight of Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Understand this. We go in the outdoor. We go up the downstairs. We are in and out of trouble. We're the talk of the town. And we get wild in the streets when the sun goes down. And the sun is set and it's time for a war. You understand? They say, whoa, good God, y'all, what is it good for? Tell them what it's good for. Let me tell you just like this. You know, we're gonna end, we're gonna end the war because we got the bombs and tonight we're gonna drop the bomb on Baltimore, Maryland and it's gonna explode right through your television set. You understand that, Warriors? Midnight yeah. and Dr. Death, the whole thing has the come bomb. to an end. We're gonna drop the bomb tonight. I love not only their promo, but the Midnight Express and LOD as well. I hope you put both here because they are straight up 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, no Especially lie. LODs. They are straight up 80s promos. We cut to the arena to see that the cages are being built. Then we get the Midnight Express cutting a promo, and sorry, Stan Lane, but he fucking sucked. It he, was bad. The life was drained out of this promo by And Bobby Stan Lane. didn't say a word. No, he just kept it fucking <laughs> up. He, he just let his partner bury himself. <laughs> and then, so Stan Lane just passes bypasses his own partner and hands the mic over to Dr. Death, who is, yes, in 80s promo mode, just screaming, he's gonna kill the birds, he's gonna kill the birds. And then it couldn't get, yeah, like you mentioned... It couldn't get 80s enough. Then we go to the Road Warriors, who just fucking scream. I don't even know what they said. They just yell, and that's what you need. Please put both of these in here, because they are hilarious. It's only a matter of minutes until we're going to be in the toughest match of our career. A steel cage will encircle two rings. There's no way in, and there's no way out. And, brother, we're ready. Pound for pound, the toughest tag team in the world today. And people have been saying to us all day long, what are you guys going to be doing there with those crazy guys, the Samoans and the Freebirds? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing. We're going to have Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and the Road Warriors watching their backs. And, brother, all hell's going to break loose. And when the smoke clears, we're going to be the victors. Come here, Dig Doc. What am I doing? I'm going bird catching. I'm flying around. And I'm looking for the birds because I'm a bird crusher. And you know something, I'm looking out here for my bug spray to kill the Samoyans. But let me tell you something, Bam Bam Terry Gordy comes out here and shoots his mouth off about dropping the bomb. Hey, Polly, look at the meat I have on my team. The Road Warriors? Hold it, guys, hold it. Hey, hey, we've had our differences, that's right. But you know one thing, I'm a crazy man, and so are you guys. And there's one thing all three of us strive for, as being the toughest, being the meanest, being a winner, and coming on top 
every single time. As I promised the Midnight Express, I'll cover their backs if they cover mine. And all I gotta say is you are two tough cookies. And I'm one tough cookie who will cover your back. All right. Midnight Express! Dr. Death! The Road Warriors! Freebirds! The Mullins! You ain't got a chance in hell to beat us! See, the one thing that we all got in common, one time or another, you gotta jump our backs from behind! But you didn't get the job done because we're all standing right here, and today, you're all gonna pay the warrior way. Tell them, Hawk! Right difference between us! And every other stinking man on this planet is, is this. Some wrestlers get beat up by a single individual and they're out for months. Well, five of them waylaid us, took me out of the stretcher while I wasn't even out a week. When we get done with you, we're going for family members, boys. So Pyro goes off over the cage as the Freebirds and Samoans come out first. The Road Warriors then come out behind Midnight Express and they get the WrestleMania entrance. They ride on the backs of motorcycles, which is a little weird, though, that they're riding bitch on the motorcycle. (laughs) That's true. Because they're the Road Warriors. You would think they would be in charge of the motorcycle. but. Knowing what happened at SummerSlam 92 and how Animal burnt his leg really badly because Hawk parked too close with him on the motorcycle because Hawk was fucked up and stuff. So when they came out, Animal could only exit on the wrong side of the motorcycle where the exhaust was. And so he burnt his leg and his tights got stuck all to one side of his leg because he had to get off the wrong side of the motorcycle. Really? Yeah, so he wrestled that match in a lot of pain. I did not know this. Yeah, that was the infamous match, too, where the uh, the doll, they had the doll, whatever that... Paul Ellering had the doll on the front of the motorcycle. Oh, I remember, yes, the puppet. What was the name of it, though? <laughs> I gotta look up the puppet's name. Rocco. Rocco. Yeah, that was the uh, <laughs> the debut of Rocco. I remember also. that now, so, yeah. Really cool entrance, but... When you watch replays of it back in hindsight, yeah, you see Paul Ellering driving out first, and he's got that fucking Rocco on the front of it. So, <laughs> Jimmy Garvin is going to start for the heels. Amazing, Patrick. They won the coin toss. Yes, and you know who's coming coming in to take on Jimmy Jam? Beautiful Bobby. Beautiful Bobby Eaton. These two just sort of brawl. Garvin tosses Eaton into the cage, and the Freebirds pull his hair under the cage so yeah Michael Hayes is reaching up under it and yanking his head down and like smashing and his him. blonde mullet was going through some real trauma here <laughs> Bobby uses the cage to hang off the ceiling and kick Garvin which was some brilliant of the, he was the only one in the match that did anything with the roof of the cage that, well yeah. uh, Dr. Death did the press slam later on but like he was the only one that, that thought of using yeah. this so he uses the ceiling to kick Garvin. Bobby puts Garvin in a Boston Crab. Then ding, ding, ding. Time is up. No, no timer on the screen. So Terry Bam Bam Gordy's coming in. He does, and they beat the shit out of Bobby Eaton here. They chuck Bobby into the cage. Gordy scoop slams him. Garvin and Gordy just double team Eaton with strikes and a back elbow. Gordy accidentally punches Garvin though, and you think, oh, dissension here. Yeah. But no. Garvin just comes right back in and just totally no-sells that it even happened. So, no dissension. 
Dr. Death is in next for the faces. He clotheslines both Freebirds. Then, in the most impressive spot of the match, Press slams Terry Bam Bam Gordy after pressing him into the roof yes. like eight times. And Terry course, Gordy was, was he's a, a massive man. Massive man. 6'10", over 300 pounds, and Dr. Death not only pressing him, but to lift him in, into the roof multiple times... That's extremely impressive. You're right. Garvin keeps eating grounded while the big men brawl. The time ticks down and Samu is in next for the heels. Yes. Samu does a roundhouse kick to Dr. Death and then he helps Terry Gordy keep Williams on the ground. Up next is Road Warrior Animal entering the cage for the faces. And this gets a good response, but not as much as the other Road Warrior would get later on. Animal, and then so he's trying to set up for his patented one ring to another shoulder tackle and they cannot get their crap together because Terry is wanting him and Terry just keeps pounding on him and so they had to swap to the other ring for him to be able to hit it which is still as awesome to this day that a man of his size can do that yeah he does his shoulder block from ring one to ring two and then poses and like he posed to a massive reaction so he, he, he knew how cool it was the faces and lay out the heels, but then Rikishi is in next. Oh, Fatu! And he goes after Animal. Samu and Rikishi team up on Animal. Hawk watches on in despair from the outside and loses his mind. Like, just starts shaking the cage and going crazy. He's climbing on it. Like he's... Even though we saw earlier them reach under the cage so you know that it's possible. Like, he could maybe do something, but no. He's just <laughs> losing his mind as the Samoans take Animal down. Sweet Stan Lane. He's in next for the faces. Bobby Eaton uses the roof again to kick Garvin, as Garvin just keeps falling for this trick over and over again. Michael Hayes enters next for the heels, and he's dishing out DDTs. One for Dr. Death, one for Animal, one for Bobby Eaton. Then he leaves the ring he's in and goes to dance in the other ring. And then Mox Hawk, who is outside, still losing his mind and very offended by Michael Hayes yes. dancing. We want Hawk chants for the other Road Warriors. This crowd was dying to see uh, Hawk get in here. Hawk finally gets in, and the place place just goes nuts. Absolutely bat crazy. He double clotheslines the Samoans from the turnbuckle, chops down Terry Gordy, clotheslines him with Dr. Death's help, flings Garvin into the buckle. Bobby Eaton then hands out some DDTs to Michael Hayes, then Samu, then Hawk does a flying shoulder block from ring to ring. Just like Animal did. Polly dangerously tries to sneak his phone into the cage, but can't figure out how. Hawk nails Garvin with a flying clothesline, and then his patented neck breaker, and then, so in war games, it's submit or surrender. You cannot get a pinfall. No, this is yeah. a difference from Lethal Lockdown, where you can just get a pinfall. So Hawk, the submission specialist of the group, <laughs> uh, but he was the most over of the group. He, and He puts a hangman on him. And he does. A hangman is where you block your hands up under a, a man's jaw, and you proceed to lift him up across your back, and he's just hanging there. He's yeah. flopping like a fish on your back and can't go anywhere. He picks up Jimmy Garvin, who was, it makes sense, so the freshest guy for the faces beats the guy that was in longest for yes. the heels. And so Garvin dangles by his neck and screams uncle. And the faces will win this war game, says. Hog never dropped down for a neckbreaker here. Yeah, just had him held up there. Yeah. Sucked. 
the baby faces are stupid here and I'll just leave the ring they don't see that they've left Animal behind so the heels just beat the shit out of Animal Animal just had the boots put to him and Rikishi and Garvin blocked the door which by the way there was two doors on this cage and the faces couldn't figure out to go to the other one uh, but so they are blocking the door Animal just gets uh, destroyed finally Hawk gets in the ring but the heels just walk out so yes. Animal got his ass beat for absolutely no reason so uh, a good War Games match like I was telling you I, I didn't like this one as much as like Wrestle War 92 because they weren't single stars so there's no reason for them to try to get themselves individually over right. as some superstar and also they weren't doing Spots. They well, yeah, because when you look back at all the all the other war games, I consider this the tag team war games because all the other ones you had Dusty, and then you had you know we had Sting Nikita, Squadron, Nikita Koloff, and the, the Dangerous Alliance. The only Sting tag Squadron. teams that you would have in there would be Road Warriors, and so you really didn't have true tag teams. This was based around nothing but tag teams. And so I just, it's a significance in that, and it's very unique, and it, it's cool. I i enjoy it. It's not, like you said, it's not the best, but it's higher up for me. Yeah, I thought it was fine. Some of the innovations, which JR and, and Bob mentioned, were was having a cameraman in the ring for yeah. the cage, which they did a good job of, like, always getting camera shots around him. He did pop up a few times in other camera shots, but having those angles from inside the cage, it got you right up to the yeah. action. Like, visually, this looked phenomenal. Yes. Because the cage was right up against uh, the apron, so there was no room to walk on the outside, so the action was pretty focused between those two rings. But having the two rings is a big advantage over Lethal Lockdown. So it did give these guys room to work, but they just didn't do a lot of work when there was nothing to really do it was sort of like how they did in the battle royal they just sort of brawled choke holds wait till the next guy yeah and they didn't do there were some like like that dr death spot was pretty cool but like that was pretty much the biggest one that happened in the match so gordon is with six-time world champion rick flair gordon says if you injure your axis vertebrae that could be it it wouldn't be. Flair says he's going to go to the ring and find out what his future is. Gordon says, "What do you think your timing will be off? Flair says, I didn't need a warm-up match. My timing's going to be just fine. Gordon says, are you sure you're 100% Rick? Rick says, I'm 120%. So there's actually no doubt going into this match. Rick, the question on my mind and on thousands of fans' mind is, why are you returning when you know perfectly well another injury to that axis vertebrae and you could be... Uh, severely injured for life. Gordon, I've heard that question a thousand times, but I've heard it once. I'm returning because <clears throat> I only know one thing in this life, and that's professionalism. This has been my life. It's the greatest sport in the world. And the only way I'm going to take another step forward in whatever I do in life is to walk out in that ring tonight and find out just what my future is. Terry Funk obviously is going to be centering his attack on your upper body. Well, he'd be a fool if he didn't. I know what I'm getting myself into, but I think Terry Funk, at the same time, in all fairness to Ric Flair, knows what he's in for. If I am 100%, if I am 120% like I feel I am, Terry Funk will have the fight of his wrestling career on his hands in a few moments. Terry Funk knows what he did to me. He knows he did not do it on a man-to-man basis. He did it when my back was turned. 
He inflicted an injury on me that almost ended my career, and now he knows that right here in Baltimore, Maryland, in front of the whole world, he has to do it again, or he has to suffer the consequences. Rick, let me ask you this. You haven't even had a warm-up match. Uh, I know that you've been working out intensively, but you haven't even had a warm-up match. Do you think your timing could be off? Could, could this be a problem? Well, I've heard that question a thousand times, too. I don't think my time will be off. I, uh, I didn't think, and I, I was asked to wrestle several times on television, I didn't think that I needed a match with anybody but a main event caliber wrestler. And uh, I wanted to find out firsthand, I guess it was my own ego, I wanted to think that I was ready. I didn't think I needed a warm-up match. And we'll find out. Maybe, maybe uh, I didn't think this out thoroughly enough. But I feel that I'm ready for Terry Funk. I feel I'm ready to be the world's heavyweight champion. And tonight, I'm going to prove it one way or another. I know, of course, I, I won't get an honest answer on this because you're going to tell me you are 100%. In my mind and in my heart, I'm 120%. If I'm not, we'll know in about an hour. That's the bottom line. Champion, good luck to you, my friend. Jordan, thank you. JR and Bob discuss and say that Funk will go for the neck. JR says, we're going to stay on the air till there's a winner. So, which is a lie, because they would get cut off by the cable company <laughs> if they went over. Terry Funk is out with Gary Hart. One fan in a trucker hat wants to legit get in a fight with Terry Funk before he gets to the ring. And Terry Funk, the the vicious heel here, does not interact with him at all. He just goes to the ring like a normal person. But if this was Scott Steiner, that fan's getting pulled over the guardrail. <laughs> That's the end of it. Then Flair gets a big ovation. A guy, a guy again, again, a guy that was mostly a heel. He had been faced for one pay-per-view cycle and now all of a sudden all is forgiven and you are the biggest babyface star on the planet that is what is so great about rick flair's because as much of a heel as he could be and as much of a pain in the butt as he could be he just was as good as he said he was and it made you respect him and like him well and also it shows the power of pro wrestling in general where you it doesn't matter how long you've been a bad guy or a good guy no. If they set up a program correctly, you can be... You can turn it immediately. Yeah. yeah, all is forgiven. Yeah. All is forgotten. So Flair gets a big ovation as he gets a shower of sparkles raining down. His pyro is beautiful. He gets strobe lights and then, of course, beautiful ladies as he is in peak Ric Flairdom here. And he also kisses random ladies on the aisleway coming down the ring. <laughs> It is <laughs> it just is. glorious. It is jet flying. It's the height of yeah. Ric Flair. Yeah. I mean, this is peak. I, I don't think the Ric Flair levels of his entrance could be higher. I mean, this is ridiculous. So, Flair comes to the ring, which, in contrast to Terry Funk's entrance, just, I mean, who do you think is going to win this match, you know? The guy that just walked out in his cowboy hat and his sleeveless t-shirt, or the guy that had this huge production. Flair and Funk start brawling on the aisleway before the bell rings. The bell, I don't think, ever rung. So I don't either. I couldn't listen for it. Funk gets stopped by Flair on the timekeeper's table. Funk flings a chair into the ring, but Flair picks it up, but he remembers, oh, that's right, I'm not a bad guy. So he just drops it, and the ref gets rid of it. And that's the end of the chair. They finally lock up in the ring, and Funk chops Flair several times. Flair chops back, of course, delivers big right hands, Flair chops him right out of the ring and then delivers a knee to Funk's face. Funk rams Flair's head into the post. Then he stomps at Flair's head on the apron. Funk suplexes Flair back into the ring. 
He wrenches at Flair's bad neck while he tries a brain buster or a suplex, but he can't get him up for it. Flair then wants to suplex Funk out of the ring, but they both just crash to the ring mats. Then a chop battle on the outside of the ring. Funk brings Flair into the ring, looks for a pile driver, but Flair dumps Funk out of the ring from a back body drop. Flair snapmares Funk on the ring mats and then twists his neck. He gets Funk back in the ring and delivers his patented knee drop. Then he delivers a pile driver to Terry Funk, so the tables have turned. Then he does it again. Funk stumbles out of the ring, crawls down the aisleway as he looks to escape, but Flair just goes and gets him, wrenches his neck, brings him back, hits a belly-to-back suplex, and slaps on the figure four. Funk gets the branding iron behind the ref's back from Gary Hart and just decks Ric Flair with it. Flair is now gushing blood. Funk pile-drives Ric Flair, but he goes for the cover and Flair gets a foot on the ropes before the three count. Funk then rips up the ring mats and wants to pile-drive Ric Flair on the concrete. Flair, though, back body drops Funk to avoid it. Funk gets Flair back in the ring, hits a swinging neck breaker three times. Funk yells at Flair, Say it, Flair! Say it! <laughs> then Flair picks up the branding iron himself, and he remembers he is the dirtiest player in the game, and decks Terry Funk with it behind the ref's back. Funk is busted open now. Flair throws him into the post, brings him into the ring, does corner punches, misses a running knee to Funk in the corner, Funk does the spinning toe hold, but then Funk goes for an inside cradle. Flair reverses the pressure and gets the quick three count to retain his title. A pretty awesome match between yes. these two. Flair doesn't have the biggest move set, but if you do the things you're good at, if you work over the angle correctly, which uh, you could say Flair didn't do a great job of really selling his bad neck. I mean, he was in peril a couple times, but after the pile drivers, I think he could have been a little more cartoonish and selling his neck and really get it over because he just looked like Superman here. He just yeah. looked like he couldn't be stopped. Oh, even, yeah, he did. Even if he took that pile driver on the concrete, he probably would have just stood back up, which would have gotten a huge reaction, actually. So maybe they should have done that spot. And Funk just seemed really outmatched the whole match. Like, he was fighting from underneath, but in, in storyline, he was supposed to have been, you know, retired all these years. So you could, right. you could say, oh, he's just not used to these big-time matches, and so I thought it delivered. It probably deserved a bigger payoff to the storyline because that finish of the Ricky Steamboat match was very big. I mean, that was a very big angle to do when Ric Flair's carted off and you think that he's broken his neck, and you probably could have gotten three matches out of this, but immediately you're spinning off into a different direction after this match. So Gary Hart gets decked by Flair, then Great Muda runs in, and miss Ric Flair. Then the heels put the boots to Flair. Then the crowd starts chanting, We want Sting, as Funk wants to pile drive Flair on a chair. And then Doug Dillinger, not Sting. Did the crowd, did they ever chant, We want Doug Dillinger? No. Because that's what they got here. Doug Dillinger breaks it up. Then Sting runs in to save Flair. So I almost think Sting was just late on his cue. He missed his cue. And they sent Doug Dillinger. Yeah, they were like, you need to go in there and stall for a minute because we don't know where the fuck Sting is. Like, So, yeah, Doug Dillinger is actually Ric Flair's hero. Sting just gets all the glory here. Uh, he runs in to help Flair out. Sting and Flair clear out the heels. Sting hands Flair the belt. It's almost like, hey, I want this one day. Yeah. And so he hands Flair the belt... But Flair is too distracted by the heels who have left the ring 
But one of them, I didn't see who, flung a chair into the ring at Ric Flair. And Ric Flair is not fucking around with this. Like, Pretty sure it was Terry Funk. He drops the belt, fuck the belt, and then runs back out at the heels. And this was like in Family Guy when Peter Griffin fights the chicken. And it's just a nonstop fight. That's what this felt like here. Yes. It's like, you think it's over... No, it's not it's over. Not it's over. time to start again. <laughs> so they go back, brawl in the aisle way. Sting and Flair chase him up the aisle. Then Flair gets the branding iron again and just fucks up Great Muda and Terry Funk. Then finally, the faces have run the heels out. And then, it's amazing, the, the luck here, as Ric Flair just happens to be walking by JR and Bob Cottle after all this happens. That's right. And JR says, hey, let's get a word with the champ here. Flair says, we just started... We're just getting warmed up. This is a great Ric Flair promo. I'm not doing it justice. I'll include it here. Anybody out there that had the privilege of seeing this? Well, we're going to keep her here. He'll be back. He'll be back. Yeah, he wants to get Sting in there. I haven't said thank you in 10 years. Thank you, pal. Now the bottom line is, Terry Funk, we just started, pal. We just got warmed up. After two and a half months, I'm just breaking a good sweat. So wherever it is, and pal, it'll be again soon. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to dog you until I wear your Texas ass out. He said he's just breaking a good sweat, and he will wear Terry Funk's Texas ass out. And Sting was too stupid to have stood there the whole time so Flair goes where's Sting at? Let me go get Sting and so he brings Sting over and Sting, his big contribution to all of this was sounds good woo, that's what Sting contributed to this big angle promo here at the end of the match then JR and Bob wrap it up, replay the finish of the main event, the credits roll as WCW had credits and we're out. Great American Bash 89. Sells you on the next show. Yeah. But also, it just shows you how stupid Sting is to trust <laughs> Ric Flair. Something he would never figure out would be betrayed by this man multiple times. Multiple. In their relationship. It's true. Because you can't, you can't make him into a... Ric Flair's a bad guy. He's the dirtiest player in the game. It's not personal, either. It's just that... It's business. Yeah, Ric Flair has to be the best. Yeah. And sometimes it comes at the expense of all his friends. That's right. What did you think of Great American Bash 1989? Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, I thought this pay-per-view flew by. It's standard pay-per-view length, uh, 2 hours, 40 minutes, but there's not a lot of filler in it. The match that actually drugged the most for me was the War Games match, uh, just because of what I was talking about with the stalling and getting ready for the next guy to come in and that battle royal that battle royal should have been cut completely yeah it was stupid that's the only thing that i wish was not in there top to bottom it was a very good card it was better than what wwf was offering in 1989 in the summertime because they had of course zeus had come in Uh uh-oh uh, this was the big no holds barred push so it was zeus and savage taking on Brutus and Hulk Hogan at Uh-oh. SummerSlam. You can definitely see a difference in the two products, and uh, WCW was doing the better wrestling. was doing the better show overall. This card was pretty flawless. Even the comedy stuff between Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette was 
was fine. I'm not going to say it's the best Great American Bash ever, but it certainly could be in the discussion. And yeah, it just uh, made me wish that I was around for this time in WCW. I think this is the kind of... This is WCW that got people hooked for years and... Yeah, I mean, this is NWA, WCW. This is right after Turner bought it. So, I mean, this is its its heyday, its start. So, absolutely. On our rating scale, Hornswoggle to Giant Gonzalez, Great American Bash, 1980 and 9. Well, you know what I'm going with. You're going to give it a Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Terry Bam Bam Gordy. I think I will give it a... I'll give it a Road Warrior Hawk. Because, Road Warrior? That's a, he's a big man. Oh, uh, super over. Uh, yeah, he... Based on how he sells moves, you would think he was a giant. But he was just a no-selling son of a bitch. Uh, well, it's my pick for this week. And Where are we going, sir? I didn't really have a great idea, so I just picked another show from July. A random show in July, so I picked ECW's Heat Wave 2000 from July 16th. 2000, with the main event being just incredible, taking on Tommy Dreamer, who we mentioned earlier in news, so we'll just tie it into that. That'll work. That'll do it for this week. Go to powerslam.tv and get 30 days for free. 30 days is a month, so enjoy that. Use the promo code RETROWRESTLING. I'm intern Alex. I'm the one and only, the greatest referee in professional wrestling history, Patrick Young. Saying, as always, my clothesline's a clothesline. And bingo, bango.